It is my view that constructive criticism goes with the turf, especially when the stakes are so high and the cases arouse passions and emotions. And in a free society that treasures freedom of speech and the strength of ideas, we at the court could not possibly claim exemption from such criticism. Hey everyone, this is Andrew Parsons from Prologue Projects. I'm filling in for Leon while he's on paternity leave. Congrats, Leon. On this premium episode of 5-4, Peter, Michael, and Rhiannon are talking about the writings of Justice Clarence Thomas. Thomas often writes concurrence or dissent that positions him to the right of the court's conservative majority. He uses his writing to put legal theories into the ether and then in future holdings enshrines them into law. In a constitution according to Clarence Thomas, the accused have no right to competent representation. Students are prisoners of their schools, and it's perfectly fine to exclude black people from juries. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have shredded our civil rights like a young cat. Shredding Rhiannon's plants. Real. Mm. <laughs> I'm Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. It's so real. I can't be mad. She's killed houseplants. Mm-hmm. She's shredded some curtains. She attacks us physically. We live in fear. We cower, actually, <laughs> while this three-pound kitten roams the house, right? But she's too cute. That's how they learn how to hunt. So that she will, as an adult, be able to kill little lizards and mice and place them at your feet. That's right. At like 3 a.m. Yeah. Honored. <laughs> Wake up to their little dismembered <laughs> right. bodies. That's right. Yeah. This is the price you pay for that beautiful moment. Yeah. <laughs> She's too cute. She's too cute to be mad yeah. at. <laughs> and folks, we understand this is an audio medium, but I can promise you, the cat is cute. It's really cute. She's Petra. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just not owner bias. She's really cute. Yeah. Named after the uh, ancient Jordanian city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's orange, so it works, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know that from being a smart history guy. I know that from playing the game Civilization. <laughs> <laughs> so like a seven wonders of the world thing. There are wonders of the world and Petra is one of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can go on about this. Let me know. No, let's talk about Uh, this wonder of the world. (laughs) America's wonder of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pivot. Today we are talking about Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. Much has been said lately about Mr. Thomas. He's always been the subject of some discussion and scrutiny because people think he's enigmatic. Mm -hmm. And it has ramped up in the past couple of years due to his prominent place within the conservative supermajority, as well as his being embroiled in a comically endless string of scandals. That's right. Mm -hmm. Tons of media coverage in recent months and years, uh, podcasts, docuseries, news segments, countless long form articles. So what have we learned? What do we know about Clarence Thomas? We know from his confirmation hearings that he is a sexual pervert. Mm-hmm. That's right. We know that he is a stupid wife. Yes. That's we right. know from both his jurisprudence about affirmative action and his reaction to being called out for violating ethics laws, for example, that he is a man incapable of introspection of any mm-hmm. type. Correct. Right. Yep. But so much ink has been spilled about Thomas's ethical quandaries, 
that it sometimes feels like the truly radical nature of his jurisprudence gets lost in the mix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to do an episode centered around just how extreme his legal philosophy is. And we thought the best way to do that would be to focus on his dissents and concurrences, which is where like the real crazy shit comes out, right? Because when you're writing majority, you're sort of speaking for everyone and there's like an aura of moderation. But in dissents and concurrences, you don't have to build any consensus, right? Mm -hmm. So you get the unfiltered good shit. Yeah. yeah. So very famously in Dobbs last year, people were concerned that the ruling not just overturned uh, abortion rights, but called into question other long-held rights that were, like abortion, historically found under the substantive due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. Right. The majority tries to like assure everyone that they have nothing to worry about. But Thomas, in his concurrence, was like, no, actually you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we're coming for gay marriage. Yeah. We're coming for contraceptive rights. Let's go. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a very clear lens into what was actually going on both in Thomas's mind and really behind the scenes in the conservative legal movement. And it was something that was being obfuscated by the majority very intentionally. So we went back through... Thomas's greatest hits to find some of the craziest shit that he has put to paper. <laughs> we will say up top that this is not comprehensive. No. That that would be a very long episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think what we did here was like a lot of what he puts to paper is cuckoo bananas, right? Pure, unfiltered cuckoo bananas. Mm -hmm. I think what we did here was like more like areas of the jurisprudence where we have particular interests, yeah. something that over the years has stuck with us about something he said in a particular area, mm -hmm. right? So it's definitely not comprehensive. He's cuckoo bananas in all of the areas of the law, on all of the Constitution. Thomas is cuckoo bananas. So yeah, this is just some of the bananas. Right. And there are a lot of ways where he's bananas in a way that's mundane for arch conservatives, right? Because arch conservatives believe a lot of bananas things, right? Yeah. You know, QAnon and whatever. They stormed the fucking Capitol and half the Republican Party thinks the election was stolen and blah, 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 blah. There are just a lot of crazy beliefs on the right. And that extends to the court. So we also wanted things that felt sort of uniquely Thomas. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like him concurring for himself or maybe only one other justice ways that he's very sort of idiosyncratic. Yeah. Right. His... And maybe more specifically to the right, even of this court. Yeah. Yes. Right. Because rarely on occasion, he might be idiosyncratic in a way that puts him to the left of his compatriots. Mm -hmm. That's not often at all. No. So, Rhea, I'll hand it off to you. What did you pick for topic number one here? Yeah, first up for me, automatically, like, I start thinking about, like, where is Clarence Thomas on criminal punishment stuff, right? Like, mm -hmm. Eighth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, I mean, what have you. Clarence Thomas is, Michael, you use the word idiosyncratic. He is certainly idiosyncratic in ways that have had lasting effects on my psyche on criminal punishment issues from arrest police powers, sentencing, what happens in prison, the death penalty, etc. One area that I have thought about a lot since law school is Batson. Batson v. Kentucky is a case that says that it's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to strike someone from serving on a jury because of that person's race, right? So 
bats in cases are about challenging when prosecutors have struck people of color from juries on the argument that they are doing so in a racially discriminatory way, right? And so a person's conviction is invalid because they didn't get a fair jury. Mm -hmm. You'll hear more about this during Donald Trump's wire deer. (laughs) 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 And so Thomas is to the right of even the other conservatives on the Supreme Court right now on Batson cases. So just to back up a little bit, you know, sort of just how this jury selection principle kind of operates. When selecting a jury, prosecutors in criminal cases, they get a certain number of what are called peremptory strikes. Those are strikes where you can strike someone from a jury for any reason, and you don't really have to say what your reason is. So, for example, like juror number five gave me bad vibes, like was giving me a dirty look Mm -hmm. during all of jury selection. Right. Mm -hmm. I think this person's going to be, you know, biased against the state's case. I'm speaking as a prosecutor. So prosecutor strikes that person. Right. Mm -hmm. But there is one banned reason you cannot strike. You cannot use a peremptory strike against a potential juror on the basis of that person's race. You cannot strike somebody because they're a person of color, because they're black, because they're white, and you cannot strike somebody because of their gender either. Now, Batson cases are about striking somebody due to their race. And even though you have this case standing for this proposition that prosecutors cannot strike somebody on the basis of their race from serving on a jury, you know, racism in the criminal punishment system, it's evident at every level, right? It's weaponized by prosecutors at every level, at every stage, including in jury selection all of the time. And you see it especially in death penalty cases. Obviously, you don't have to go back that far in history to a time where black people were not allowed to serve on juries. Mm -hmm. Black men would be convicted by an all-white jury Mm -hmm. many, 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 many times that was wrongfully convicted for something they did not do. In many cases, sentenced to death by an all-white jury, right? Every single person in the courtroom would be white except for the accused person. That was common. That was extremely normal. So you have this case, Batson, that says that You can't strike someone because of their race from serving on a jury, but it's still extremely difficult to prove that this happened. Right. And it is exceedingly rare that a court overturns a conviction on the basis that prosecutors were racist during jury selection. So there are two cases here where the Supreme Court of the United States finds that prosecutors in two different cases have violated Batson, have struck people from a jury on the basis of their race. And in these two cases, Justice Thomas is saying, no, that didn't happen. And he is in a small minority or alone in saying that it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So the first one is a case called Miller L. v. Cockrell. This case, actually, Mr. Miller L.'s case went to the Supreme Court twice. So it's Miller L. v. Cockrell. It's also Miller L. v. Dretke. This was a death penalty case where Thomas Joe Miller L. was convicted of capital murder. He was sentenced to death and he appealed his conviction on the basis that he hadn't had a fair jury, a jury that had been chosen without race discrimination because Dallas County prosecutors struck 10 out of 11 black jurors in his case And on top of that, Miller L. and his defense team, they could show a pattern at the Dallas County DA's office, including explicit written policies by the district attorney to exclude black people and other people of color from juries. 
part of the evidence in that case, somebody who was working as a judge but who had been previously a prosecutor in the Dallas County DA's office, he had testified that the district attorney in Dallas told him while he worked there as a prosecutor that he would be fired if he ever allowed a single black person on a jury. There was a literal training manual at Dallas County DA's office that said prosecutors should exclude all people of color from juries. This is from the training manual. Quote, do not take Jews, Negroes, Dagos, Mexicans or a member of any minority race on a jury, no matter how well educated. This was in the mid 80s. This was well after the Supreme Court. (laughs) Isn't it Dagos or is it that? Dagos? Yeah, it's Dagos. Sorry. sorry. Let me correct you on your slur. I wasn't going to jump in on the slur (laughs) pronunciation. That's for Italians, right? That is for Italians. Yes. Thank you. That's why we can say it. I love Rachel coming in like mm, mispronunciation on the slur. Right. <laughs> Just so our listeners know, Rachel pops in maybe once, twice an episode tops to sort yeah. of come in with a question or a correction. Right. And she did it just now for the pronunciation of Dago. It makes you look good that you don't know how a slur is pronounced. That's true. I don't know how these slurs are pronounced. No, it's just that I live in a place where the slurs are about other people, not Italians. I thought you were going to say, like, I live in a place that is blissfully Italian free. So with all of the evidence, including the evidence from his own case, the way prosecutors had questioned potential black jurors in his case, the fact that 10 out of 11 potential black jurors had been struck from his case. Right. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court finds in Mr. Miller L's favor in 2003. They said, yes, obviously, (laughs) this is a violation of Batson. This is a violation of the Constitution. Right. You can't put Dago in the manual. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the manual. (laughs) I feel like you shouldn't have to be like a constitutional lawyer to know that. Exactly. Clarence Thomas feels differently. He writes a dissent here saying that the evidence of race discrimination by the Dallas County DA's office is circumstantial. Doesn't prove anything. Yeah, the circumstance <laughs> is that the manual says yeah, it has slurs. That's the circumstance. There's slurs in the manual. Right. Explicit instructions yeah. in the manual for prosecutors to strike people of color on the basis of their race. Like, yes. yeah, that's a type of circumstance <laughs> yes. when you think about it. A violation of the Constitution is how I would describe that circumstance. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) He says all of what the district attorney's office did here, the prosecutors in Mr. Miller's case, it's irrelevant. And he does that special, you know, Scalia did this. All the conservatives really do this. But Mm. Thomas, he really loves doing this. He spends part of his dissent describing the murder that Mm. Mr. Miller L is accused of, right? Mm -hmm, We've talked about this before. Yes, there is a crime that brought this case to a court, right? That is not what the court is deciding any question about, right? Not relevant. They are deciding, was the process, was the jury fair, right? Was the jury selected in a way that was not racially discriminatory? When you hear about this murder, you won't feel so bad about those slurs in that manual. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That that is the rhetorical device. That is the purpose of including these kinds of details, right? And I'm sorry, like, I know this probably goes without saying, but like the whole point is that like, 
we can't actually be confident that Miller L did these things. Right. It's just an exercise in assuming the conclusion that we're trying to reach using a fair process. I mean, if you've really unpacked it, what it's saying is like when crimes are bad enough, we can just railroad someone. Right. Doesn't matter. So that we have a scapegoat. That's the actual idea being defended. This is a heinous crime and somebody needs to be punished for it. So why not him? Why not this guy? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, for sure. Right. It's like if there was a guy who's just like, there's video of me on the other side of the country at the time of this murder, and I really feel like a judge should see it. And Clarence Thomas is like, at three thirty a.m., eighty-seven-year-old <laughs> <laughs> Gertrude McCutcheon was alone in her apartment. Someone stabbed this poor old lady in the back. <laughs> yeah. And you're just like, yeah, but it wasn't that fucking guy. <laughs> And it may have been Miller L, but like the whole point is to have a system that makes sure of that in a fair way. Right. It's the purpose of the amendment. It's the purpose yes. of the Bill of Rights. Yes. It's the purpose of due process. It's like the whole concept. Yes. Exactly. We'll talk about this in my Sixth Amendment section because Thomas says some of this shit even more explicitly. Yeah. So Thomas, in that case, is writing a dissent with overwhelming evidence that prosecutors had been racially discriminatory in selecting juries in that case, an exceedingly rare circumstance where the Supreme Court actually agrees, actually says, yeah, that was racially discriminatory. Thomas setting himself apart there. There's another Batson case, Flowers v. Mississippi. A lot of people might know about this case. This is the case of Curtis Flowers. Mm -hmm. A podcast that became famous covered this case in the dark, it was called. And it was just a few years ago Mm -hmm. that the case dropped. Yeah, that was just a few years ago. So if this rings a bell or if you haven't heard of it, you should check out the podcast in the dark. In 1996, Curtis Flowers allegedly murdered four people in Winona, Mississippi. Now, Curtis Flowers is a black man. And in Mississippi, one prosecutor, Doug Evans in Winona, tried Curtis Flowers for this murder six separate times. In the first three trials, Curtis Flowers was convicted and the jury sentenced him to death. Mm -hmm. But in each of those situations, an appellate court in Mississippi overturned those convictions on the grounds that the prosecutor, Doug Evans, had committed egregious prosecutorial misconduct, mostly by violating Batson, Mm -hmm. mostly in the form of keeping black people off the jury. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you were wondering, like, isn't the double jeopardy prevent you? Isn't that like sextuple jeopardy, like quintuple, (laughs) sextuple jeopardy? Like, it's a a lot of jeopardy. Right. But it's because it's the same trial. The first one keeps getting thrown out. Right. Right. And he's getting tried again and again. Yeah. Exactly. It's a new jeopardy each time. (laughs) Right. Or no, it's the same jeopardy. Sorry. Yeah, it's the same jeopardy. It's the same jeopardy. It's not a sixth. Yeah. Yeah. And just to note, if he had been found not guilty, he would not be able to be tried again. Right? Right. Mm -hmm. The fourth and fifth time that Curtis Flowers is tried, the jury ends up with a hung jury. It's a mistrial. In the sixth trial, Doug Evans comes back, tries him a sixth time. That's the one that ends up in front of the Supreme Court. Curtis Flowers was convicted, but this time it gets appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court this time finds that Doug Evans had again discriminated against black people in selecting the jury that convicted (laughs) Curtis Flowers. And so they overturned his conviction. Right. Mm -hmm. Here are some numbers. 
Over the six trials where Doug Evans prosecuted Curtis Flowers, Doug Evans struck 41 out of 42 Black prospective jurors. He questioned those Black prospective jurors more extensively in more detailed ways than he did white jurors. Meanwhile, over all of these six trials, Curtis Flowers had been in solitary confinement in Mississippi State Prison for over two decades. Mm -hmm. This case finally gets to the Supreme Court of the United States. Brett Kavanaugh. Writes the majority. Woke king. Yeah. <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh writes the majority saying, quote, a court confronting this kind of pattern cannot ignore it. Curtis Flowers conviction is overturned. Doug Evans has again violated Batson. Right. Where's Clarence Thomas? Mm. Clarence Thomas is in dissent here, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. saying the majority only ruled this way to, quote, boost its self-esteem. Yeah. <laughs> Says Doug Evans, the prosecutor, is blameless. All of this is completely legal. It is totally fine how Curtis Flowers has been prosecuted now for the sixth time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you get from Batson, I think, a place where, like, conservatives are generally not to be lauded on their jurisprudence in the criminal punishment system on any aspect, right? Or on racism, mm -hmm. right? This is, like, literally the least you could do. This right. is some right. of the most blatant racism you could ever imagine. Exactly. Yeah. I love saying you're just doing the right thing to boost your self-esteem. Right. He might not um, be wrong right. in regards to Brett Kavanaugh in specific. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, right. That might be a fucking bullseye. Right, right. But it's also just completely discounting any of this like overwhelming evidence, right? But, but that doesn't mean that Kavanaugh's wrong. Oh, totally. Right? No, no. But No, but it's very Thomas because he's so quintessentially conservative. Yeah. This is sort of what conservatives believe about race stuff. It's like, you don't really believe this you're yeah. you're just trying to virtue signal right yep. you're just right. trying to like place yourself on a moral pedestal above the rest of us yeah and it's not authentic yeah the prosecutor keeps doing this and the judges keep allowing it because this is what conservatives and white people in mississippi want right right this is what we want who the fuck are you pretending to be right right who are you impressing here yeah right in his mind there can be no actual principle standing against this right mm -hmm. he just thinks that the majority is posturing. Like, yeah. you can't possibly. Exactly. Right. Like, you don't care about this, and also I don't care about this, but I'm not pretending. Right. Exactly. And that's why I think these bats in cases where it's already so rare that somebody is granted any form of relief under Batson, right? Mm -hmm. That it's found that prosecutors are racially discriminatory in selecting juries, that Thomas is really setting himself apart by like really kind of defining his approach here as being one that's like, there is not a racial discrimination problem in the criminal punishment system. Yeah. Right. And that's like, it's just pretty wild, right? For somebody yeah. to be like that bold in stating somebody on the fucking Supreme Court. Yeah. yeah. So that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's turn to a lighter note. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk human rights and national security. <laughs> Great. War on terror. <laughs> We've discussed this before. We had an episode on this case, Hamdi v. Rumsfeld from the early aughts. This is a case about a U.S. citizen who was captured in Afghanistan, 2002, I think. Mm -hmm. He's first held on a military base. Once they find out he's a citizen, they bring him to Virginia, where he's held in a military base there. No charges are brought. He's never given any counsel. He's held incommunicado for two years. 
Yeah. As a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil, detained for two years. At some point, his dad finds out where he is and like files like a next friend habeas corpus petition on his behalf. And the Supreme Court is like, okay, you kind of have to justify holding a U.S. citizen indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Scalia and Stevens have this like very good concurrence and dissent talking about how like, look, the way we deal with U.S. citizens who engage in war against the United States is we try them for treason. Right. We put them in jail and we try them for treason. We have crimes for this. We have a history of this. It's been done many, many times. And they have all the process rights and substantive rights of any other criminal defendant. Mm-hmm. Thomas, on the other hand, writes this dissent where it is just so fascist. He uses his quote that the majority uses as well, but in his mouth just sounds really eerie. He says, the war power of the national government is the power to wage war successfully. Mm-hmm. And according to Thomas, that means the ability of the executive to just round people up and throw them in a hole and forget about them. Right. Like forever. Right. As long as the conflict is going on. And he speculates, which we'll talk a bit about. He he does this in his opinions where he has a lot of half-baked thoughts. Mm-hmm. He speculates that this might even be an inherent power that the executive has flowing from their position, extra constitutional implied power. From God directly. Right. <laughs> The natural rights kind of thing. But he says that they don't need to decide that because the authorization to use military force, which Congress passed that said that the president has, you know, the authorization to use all necessary and appropriate force to find and bring to justice everyone who involved in the planning of 9-11 basically means that you can pick someone up in Afghanistan who indisputably had nothing to do with 9-11 right. and throw them in a hole forever even if they're a U.S. citizen and it's on U.S. soil. Mm -hmm. It's like in times of war, you have no substantive rights. That is the gist of it. Like what we're talking about here, habeas corpus, it's not even in the Bill of Rights. This is in Article 1 of the Constitution. This is in the body of the Constitution. It is arguably the only substantive right in the body of the Constitution and in the first article. So like- (laughs) This is like really extreme stuff. Mm-hmm. There is another case a few years later. So after Hamdi, they start doing these military commissions for enemy combatants. And the combatants say, like, you can't do this. Like, we are owed more than this. Mm-hmm. These commissions are a joke. And there's sort of three statutes in issue. There's uh, the Universal Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ, the authorization to use military force, and something called the Detainee Treatment Act of 2005 which was passed after these commissions started that, you know, the government said was like essentially Congress acquiescing to Bush's decision to use these military commissions. Now, none of these actually authorize the use of military commissions. The UCMJ is the only one that explicitly authorizes the use of military commissions. And it says those have to be lawful and they have to conform with the rules and laws of war and all this other stuff, like the Geneva Conventions. And this is what like the Supreme Court ends up like stinking its teeth into and saying, look, we don't think the AUMF is specific enough to authorize the use of these commissions. 
And we don't think the Detainee Treatment Act is like this ex post facto ratification. So you have to conform with the UCMJ and you have to conform with the Geneva Conventions and your commissions have to be lawful. They have to conform with the laws of war. Right. Thomas dissents from this, reiterates the idea that the president might have inherent authority again here to just convene military tribunals mm-hmm. with little or no procedural rights. But again, he says, we don't need to decide that because the AOMF does the work anyway. Yeah. But taken together, what this is saying is that in times of war, there are essentially no substantive rights in Hamdi, not even habeas corpus applies, and there are no procedural rights in Hamdan. And he says, you don't even need an act of Congress to declare war. He says in Hamdan that like, look, you know, Al-Qaeda bombed the World Trade Center in 1996, and that's arguably an act of war. And so from that point on, essentially all bets are off. The Constitution, forget about it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people use the word fascism very lightly, but this is fascism. deeply authoritarian. Very explicitly. And like I said, I think during our Hamdi episode, we'll see who's laughing. Yes. When we declare Ginny an enemy combatant. (laughs) Yes. But like under this logic, and and I don't want to be like, I got you by your logic, but like, I think it is worth playing out. On January 21st, 2021, Joe Biden, according to these opinions, could have said, look, there was an assault on the Capitol by this radical mm-hmm. group and rounded up not just everybody who was at the Capitol, but yeah, everybody in the Trump administration, Ginny, every name you've ever heard in the January 6th committee reports and presentations of Republican members of Congress, Republican state senators, everyone involved in the fake elector scheme and like extraordinarily rendered them to like black sites in Qatar and like tortured and killed them. Right. Like that would be consistent with what Thomas is saying. And I have been very, very critical of like the Biden administration's lackluster response to the January 6th stuff. But I think we can all agree that what they've done has been better than that. <laughs> like that is like what, what they've done has been far more consistent with the idea of a democracy and a rule of law than just literally rounding up thousands of people right and disappearing them right? right but that is what thomas is saying is is okay yeah yeah although i do feel like he would uh find some nuance in that case oh, of course <laughs> of course so i have another area of law where i think thomas is unique mm. uh, and it's students rights and this is something we've talked about before i think it's one of the most revealing lines of his jurisprudence now it's also going to be consistent with a mostly unspoken theme so far which is that Thomas has very specific feelings about bad boys. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you are a good boy, you get a certain treatment. And if you are a bad boy, you get mm-hmm. no rights <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Now, we did an episode once on Morse v. Frederick, and that was the case where a high school student held up a sign that said, bong hits for Jesus at a public event mm-hmm. and was disciplined for it by the school district. And the question was whether that violated his First Amendment rights. And the court held that it did not because the First Amendment does not protect any drug-related antics, shenanigans, or tomfoolery. (laughs) But Thomas, Thomas writes a solo concurrence going even farther, saying Mm -hmm. that in his originalist view, students in public schools don't have speech rights at all. Yeah. He said that back in olden times, 
schools required, quote, absolute obedience. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, and I think, Michael, you read this quote in our episode. I did. In the earliest public schools, teachers taught and students listened. Teachers commanded and students obeyed. It's not yeah. even teachers taught and students learned. Yeah, right? no, it's, it's right. like yeah. no, it's about subjugation of another person, right? Of a small person. Just literally like a baby brain. <laughs> Teachers would teach and the students would listen. And yeah. they all sat facing forward with their hands mm-hmm. folded in front of them. Right. Like, yeah. What are you talking yeah. about, dude? Yeah. Just right. very fundamentally Clarence right. Thomas, like deeply conservative, authoritarian vision, rooted in this like truncated amateur history, right? Mm. Yeah. But yeah. when it comes to students' rights and Clarence Thomas, it gets drastically worse. That was 2007. He spent some time ruminating on this. And then in 2009, there's a case called Safford United School District v. Reading, a future five to four episode. <laughs> in this case, a 13 year old girl, Savannah Redding, was accused by another student of distributing pills to fellow students. School officials find knives in the girl's day planner, but they search her belongings, search her bag, and they don't find any pills. So they have her stripped down to her underwear and then pull her bra and underwear out to ensure that she's not hiding any pills. Mm -hmm. She sues alleging a Fourth Amendment violation because it was an unreasonable search. Mm -hmm. The majority of the court grants the school officials qualified immunity hence the future five to four episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But eight justices all agree that what happened violated the Fourth Amendment. Right. Because it was an unreasonable search. The ninth justice is Clarence Thomas. (laughs) He says that the context made the search reasonable. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through the context with Mm y'all. The school claimed that they had a history of issues with substance abuse, including a student being hospitalized from pills several years prior. This is something that Clarence Thomas factors in here. Yeah. (laughs) Recently, one boy's mother claimed that he became violent and sick, and he said that he had taken pills that a classmate gave to him, didn't specify who. Mm. The boy also says that Redding, the girl who gets strip searched, hosted a party where she served alcohol a few weeks prior to the search. Mm. He shows the school officials a pill and said that he had received it from Savannah Redding's friend. Mm. Savannah's friend, in turn, says, no, it wasn't mine. It was Savannah's. Mm. So fully a child's game of telephone so far. Right. They bring the pill down to the nurse's office, test it. They bring her in for the search. That leads to the strip search of this 13-year-old girl. (laughs) 13-year-old Thomas says, quote, It was eminently reasonable to conclude that the backpack was empty because Redding was secreting the pills in a place she thought no one would look. So to be clear here, the fact that they searched the backpack and did not find pills justifies the search. Right. The fact that it doesn't contain the pills they're looking for is actually evidence that they're somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, big brain. (laughs) Big brain shit here. (laughs) Strip searching a 13-year-old girl. Right. Now, there's a kicker here. I mentioned that that little snitch boy gave the school a pill, Mm -hmm. and they brought it down to the nurse's office for testing. Mm -hmm. Do you know what it was? Prescription strength ibuprofen. Wow. Jesus Christ. Good thing we strip searched a child. All of the pills involved in this case are prescription strength 
painkillers. Like the other pill they find is naproxen, which is a leaf. Right. Right. And prescription strength just means like it's like taking four Tylenol instead of two. Right. Right. It's literally just a double dose. Yeah. And Thomas has a whole thing about how that doesn't matter because all prescription drugs are banned under the rules and blah, blah, blah. He says, quote, Redding would not have been the first person to conceal pills in her undergarments, nor will she be the last after today's decision, which announces the safest place to secrete contraband in school. Without noting, of course, that she wasn't hiding anything in her underwear. Right, I was going to say, was she hiding it? He says, nor will she be the last, but she wasn't, right? She wasn't any of them. She wasn't any number. She wasn't first, second, third, last, any of them. She wasn't doing it. No. He also says that the decision hands control of public schools over to the students, (laughs) which is a quote that traces back to the dissent in Tinker, Mm -hmm. the OG students' free speech case. Thomas then recommends returning to the standard of in loco parentis, where schools essentially have any authority that parents would to discipline the students. Mm -hmm. Just like a ludicrously authoritarian and outmoded standard that basically deprives both parents and children of their liberty, right? Because Mm -hmm. parents don't have the ability to control what the school is doing to their child in terms of discipline. Right. And again, I thought this was just pitch perfect, Thomas. Like, Aggressively authoritarian, placing zero value on the privacy and dignity of this girl, Mm -hmm. embracing a wildly antiquated legal doctrine that like you learn about like the third year of law school. Mm -hmm. Right. And also just like demonstrating how he treats different types of people. Yeah. Because when it was the 13 year old being strip searched. It's valid due to the fact that several years ago, some other kid overdosed, right? Right. But when it's Clarence Thomas being accused of sexual harassment directly by the victim herself, or when he's proven to have violated ethics laws, all of a sudden it's a lynching. It's a witch hunt, right? Right. Right. They're trying to murder me. Me, poor Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Right. There's absolutely no consistency here other than that there are in-groups and out-groups and he's the ultimate in-group in his mind. That's exactly right. You say good boys, bad boys, but with Thomas, sometimes it feels very much like serfs and lords. Yeah. It's like 16th century vibe on it. Right. (laughs) Right. There's a lot of hierarchy built into the good boys and bad boys. Right. It's part of this nation's war on cool kids, you know, (laughs) kids who sneak a couple of knives into school, have parties where they do prescription strength ibuprofen. Papa, prescription strength Tylenol. <laughs> yeah, someone who brought Motrin 800 to school. <laughs> Yo, I got the good shit. Right? You guys have been doing that ibuprofen 100 milligrams. <laughs> no, I got the raw. And you know, one of the things that I learned from Slow Burns coverage of Clarence Thomas when they went over his early life was that he was a huge nerd loser. Yeah. And I look at his students' rights cases and I think this is a nerd loser yeah. trying to get back at the bad kids. Maybe a snitch himself. Right. Yeah. You know, big tattletale vibes from Clarence Thomas. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of good boys, bad boys, and Thomas's theory there, back to the criminal punishment system, talking about the Sixth Amendment, Thomas also sets himself apart from other conservatives from other people on the court on the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment means a lot of things, but what we're talking about here in particular is the right to counsel. So there's this 2019 case called Garza v. Idaho. Now, the Sixth Amendment says that people have the right to, quote, assistance of counsel. And 
we have talked on the podcast before about a case, Gideon v. Wainwright, in 1963. That was the case that that guaranteed a court-appointed lawyer to anyone facing serious criminal charges if you can't afford to hire a lawyer on your own, right? Mm -hmm. That case was decided under the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment guarantees the right to assistance of counsel. Gideon v. Wainwright says, well, that must mean that if you are accused of a serious crime and you can't hire an attorney yourself, then the government will provide you one, right? Another big guarantee included by the Sixth Amendment right to counsel is that the assistance you get from your counsel must be effective, right? That's the uh, legal term that's used to mean sufficient. Not only do you have a body representing you, right, like somebody who's a lawyer, but the representation that the lawyer gives has to be constitutionally adequate. This is called effective assistance of counsel in the law, right? So Garza v. Idaho. Garza is a case about ineffective assistance of counsel. Mr. Garza pled guilty in exchange for a 10-year sentence to, I believe, like a robbery charge in Idaho. He was sentenced to 10 years and he wanted to file an appeal, but his lawyer refused to file an appeal. And there were excuses why the lawyer said he didn't file the appeal. But Garza asked, there were repeated requests from his client to file that appeal, and he still didn't. And so the question at the Supreme Court is whether the lawyer provided constitutionally sufficient counsel to his client under the Sixth Amendment, right? And the majority finds that the lawyer did not provide effective assistance of counsel, that the lawyer should have filed that appeal despite the procedural technicalities that he was claiming meant that he didn't have to. The court says, no, you should have. Your client did not get constitutionally required effective assistance of counsel. And so go back to square one. So Clarence Thomas dissents here, saying that what the lawyer did was perfectly reasonable, definitely passes constitutional muster, blah, 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 blah. But what's cuckoo about the dissent, actually, is that Thomas goes even further into what he thinks the Sixth Amendment actually guarantees. And even though this is not a question in this case at all, he starts talking about how they should be undoing both things the Constitution has been interpreted to guarantee in the Sixth Amendment. Effective assistance of counsel and the right to counsel, even if you can't afford an attorney. This is not Garza being appointed an attorney by the state is not an issue in this case. Right. (laughs) And that's what Thomas is talking about in this dissent. In addition to saying, no, the lawyer was fine. There is no problem with the representation that Garza received. Right. This is classic Thomas because a lot of his solo dissents and concurrences the vibe is just like, I was reading the most psychopathic law review article yes. you could ever imagine the other day. And here's here's what I learned. Yes, yeah. right, exactly. Here's an angle that I absorbed right. from that. Yeah, he says, quote, the right to counsel is not an assurance of an error-free trial or even a reliable result. It ensures fairness in a single respect, permitting the accused to employ the services of an attorney. So to Thomas, the Sixth Amendment doesn't guarantee the right to an attorney if you can't afford one. Right. The Sixth Amendment doesn't guarantee adequate representation by an attorney who represents you. All the Sixth Amendment guarantees, according to Thomas, is that you can hire an attorney right. if you want. If you're rich. And if you have the ability to, if you can afford it. Rich people can hire attorneys. Yes. The rest of you get fucked. And this is exactly what you were talking about earlier, Michael, right? Like the Sixth Amendment, this is in the Bill of Rights. It says, Mm -hmm. quote, in all criminal prosecutions, 
the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Yes, it's the right to access... That's, <laughs> if you have the money. This is like what they believe rights are, right? right. It's like exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's about access. Right. Access to speech, right? Sure. Mm. Right. We all have equal access to independent expenditures of one point two billion dollars every election <laughs> right. cycle. Right. right, exactly. Some of us were just frugal enough to save. That's right. Exactly. And get yeah. that one point two billion dollars. But it's so <laughs> interesting to frame it. I mean, it's so cuckoo to frame it oh, as yeah. like oh, well, it's actually the right to the access because actually the Sixth Amendment says a lot more than just that. Yeah. Before it gets to, you have the right to have the assistance of counsel for your defense. Right. The Sixth Amendment also says you have the right to a speedy trial, a public trial, an impartial jury. You must be informed of the charges against you. You must be able to confront the witnesses against you. You must be allowed to call witnesses in your favor. All of those things, right? And it's not about access there. Those are just like the things that... A trial has to have. No, what if you had to pay for your own trials? <laughs> well, no. It, <laughs> they can give you a slow yeah. trial, but if you pay money, they have to speed it up constantly. You want a jury of your peers? You have to pay $50 a head an hour. <laughs> yeah. Your Honor, I would like to pay my $50 witness confrontation charge. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We've said this a million times before. It's not a right. If you have to pay for it, right. it's not a right. If only people with money can access it. That's not what a right is, right? If you want the free jury, they will be all white. <laughs> yes. That's the default. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thomas goes on. He says, expanding the right to counsel in this way, expanding it, expanding the right to counsel, expanding meaning it. ensuring that the right to counsel means adequate counsel and ensuring that the right to counsel means <laughs> right. you do get counsel. You don't just have a lawyer. You have actual assistance from your lawyer, right. which is the language in the amendment, to be clear. He says that expanding the right to counsel this way, quote, directly conflicts with the government's legitimate interest in the finality of criminal judgments. Mm. What are we doing here? He loves the finality of criminal judgments yeah. as like a, a thing. Like he talks about it in, in habeas cases, too. Mm -hmm. Where he's like, oh, so they basically get to appeal again? Like, what about finality? Yeah. Right. What about the value yeah. of being done with this? <laughs> it's like, what? what is the value of being done with right. it? <laughs> it's like this very abstract thing that he imagines is like incredibly like weighty and powerful. But mm -hmm. it is a kindergarten understanding of this stuff, right? Yes. Why do we have the Sixth Amendment, Clarence, it's because the finality of a conviction is sometimes so unfair mm -hmm. that the government has to be forced right. to assure certain fairness in the process. Right, right. The fact that convictions tend to be final is exactly why you need to ensure all the procedural stuff. Exactly. Right. right. It's very weird that he doesn't seem to process that on any substantive level. Right. The power of finality that gives force to yes. this amendment. Right. Yeah. yeah. If the finality of a criminal judgment were all that matters, then we wouldn't have these procedural assurances to bake in fairness into the system. Right. right. If it was just about the finality of criminal judgments, then there wouldn't be a fucking Sixth Amendment. You fucking idiot. Like, it's so stupid. And yeah. it's hilarious that he bakes this into like a supposedly originalist interpretation of the Sixth Amendment. Like he, he literally right. says, like, at the time of the founding, they weren't contemplating public defender offices. 
Well, duh. But also, like, again, Bill of Rights, Clarence, like, okay, take a step back. What were they thinking about? Surely I've said this on the podcast, right? The Fourth, the Fifth, the Sixth, and the Eighth Amendment, what are they about? They're about the rights of criminal defendants. Yeah. The Founding Fathers were fucking concerned about something. That's fully 40% of the Bill of Rights. And that's not if you're counting Amendment 1. Yeah. It's more than 40 because the Ninth doesn't even really exist. The Ninth doesn't exist. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I was about to say, the ninth also could be considered one that could protect criminal defendants and is one that Thomas likes to pretend does not exist. Right, right, exactly. And so don't give me this is an originalist interpretation bullshit, right? And so, again, Sixth Amendment right to counsel does not mean you have to get adequate counsel and does not mean that you get an attorney appointed. This is Clarence Thomas, some true idiosyncrasy here. In that case, he's joined only by Gorsuch in that part of the dissent. So, yeah, real dark stuff there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's switch gears to something lighter. Yeah. Let's talk. Something modern, (laughs) something hot. (laughs) Clarence Thomas and the last few years, Trump. Elections, mm-hmm. January 6th. Democracy. Democracy, corruption, the good stuff. <laughs> we should mention that after the election was over and after the riots in the Capitol, there were still some outstanding cases from the 2020 election that made their way up to the Supreme Court, including this Pennsylvania case called Republican Party of Pennsylvania v. The Graffin Reed. This is a case that was about absentee ballots and extending deadlines and all this stuff that the court eventually dismissed as moot. Because the election was over. <laughs> yeah. Not only was the election over, the subsequent coup was over as well. The insurrection was over. Yeah. It was all done. Every election from here on out comes in two <laughs> right. phases. The formal process. The election and then the subsequent coup. And attempt. then the coup period. The, the light coup era of the election. And so, like, this is a point in time when, like, the Supreme Court is like, fuck this. Let's put this behind us. Mm -hmm. The last thing we want to do now, remember, this is also, like, when a lot of corporations were running from politicians who had voted against certifying the electors and things like that. Like, everybody was still very upset about January 6th and... Everybody was trying to distance themselves from it, right? but not Clarence Thomas. <laughs> Clarence Thomas was like, who the fuck are we kidding? We should be hearing this case and we should be talking about whether the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overstepped mm-hmm. and you know, thrown in some light independent state legislature stuff, which of course he would later go on to endorse. It's just very... I want to say not even like reading the room, right? <laughs> right? Like nobody <laughs> wants this right now, Clarence. Not even yeah. like the Republicans don't want this. Like, right. it's just, like cut it out, bro. Like <laughs> kicking him under the desk. Like stop. <laughs> yeah, stop. Come on. <laughs> and so, of course, after this, uh, as we all know, the January 6th committee went about doing its work and they subpoenaed a bunch of documents which the Biden administration wanted to hand over, but Trump was like claiming executive privilege over. And this got litigated in court and the Supreme Court essentially was like, yeah, give him the fucking documents. Mm -hmm. We don't want any part of this. Thomas dissented from this, first of all, did not want the January 6th committee to get these documents and didn't recuse from this, which as you might remember, his wife was like 
at the very least sort of on the outskirts of the whole scheme. Yeah. I mean, we don't really know what Ginny was doing right. in the election through January 6th period, but we do know some of what she was doing and some of what she was doing was emailing state legislators yeah. about alternate slates of electors. That's right. And unless Ginny happened to think of that on her own, <laughs> it sure sounds a lot like the scheme that was coming down directly from the White House. Right. right. And it sure seems like Ginny had some awareness of that. Right. And was playing a part to execute that scheme. She might not have been one of the, like the six unindicted co-conspirators who seem to have a big role in the shaping of this scheme. No, and they keep her around because she's Clarence Thomas's wife, let's be clear here. Right. But she's still part of this. On board with trying to see it through, right? Make it happen yeah. and make it successful. She's a role player. She's a three and D guy. Yeah, exactly. End of the bench, but on the team, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Texting Mark Meadows, Absolutely. Trump's chief of staff, being like, Biden crime family going to be on barges outside Guantanamo Bay. It's very cool <laughs> for her that she was part of the real conspiracy, but then she also absorbs the fake conspiracies. Any conspiracy will do. Like she's like, hey, we're doing this real coup thing if you guys want to do fake electors. But then also she's texting the president, basically, <laughs> right. being yeah. like, Biden's going to be on barges. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you're doing great, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> That's my sixth man right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Thomas has to. I, I Obviously, they have denied discussing this sort of shit for years. I mean, come the fuck on. Well, we don't discuss our work one way or, or the other. Nobody believes that. That Jenny Thomas was part of a coup attempt and thought that Joe Biden was going to be on a barge outside of Guantanamo Bay yeah. and did not mention that to her husband yeah. out of respect for his position. That's ridiculous. Come on now. Yeah. I got a barge to sell you. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who says that they don't discuss the stuff and I respect that or I believe them either is just a bald faced liar who's running cover mm -hmm. for them or like has the brain capacity of like a Ginny Thomas. <laughs> The part of the lizard's tail that keeps wiggling after it's like removed from their body, <laughs> you know, right? Just right. Like... Just the memory of neurons firing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So we each sort of poked into one or two areas of jurisprudence here, and I want to be clear that we're just scratching the surface, right? Yes. There are many more areas where Thomas is well to the right of the modern court, mm -hmm. and. I do think we would be remiss if we didn't mention one of them, which is that he doesn't really believe in the Establishment Clause, mm -hmm. the separation of church and state. Yeah. We've talked about this before on the podcast, so I don't need to get into it too much, but he believes that the Establishment Clause only applies to the federal government, and therefore states can establish official state religions, right? Just yeah. top-level stuff. The, you Old know? school. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is throwback. And by throwback, we mean hundreds of years. Right. <laughs> you know? And I have to say, I'm just sort of envious of the right about this stuff. Because, like, it's been a long time since the left had someone doing what Thomas is doing on the court, right? He's carving out his own vision of the Constitution, unfiltered by, like, institutional norms or political posturing. Contrast that with Roberts or Kagan, right? Who were always sort of like jostling and compromising and trying to win a majority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe that gets them results, right? Maybe it's a net good for them, but 
they're not articulating something clear and coherent, right? There's no express normative vision of what they want the law to be. Right. And Thomas provides that. It's just that his vision is one as seen through the eyes of a demon with a degenerative brain condition. <laughs> right. right. But nonetheless, right. I am conceptually envious. Yes. Right, right. Like I was saying, like the serfs and the lords, I mean, I think you can draw like a, a broader idea of him from that, where he's kind of like, you know what? I climbed my way up out of serfdom, and now I deserve to be an aristocrat. Yeah. I deserve mm -hmm. all the spoils. I deserve the lord status. Of yeah. being a lord, mm -hmm. and you all should be kissing my feet, and fuck anyone who disagrees, right? Yeah. And I think that that sort of attitude is very endemic in his jurisprudence. Yeah. yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, Peter mentioned sometimes he has these sort of half-baked concurrences or dissents, or it seems like he's like read some articles and then he like just wants to talk about them. Mm -hmm. I noticed preparing for this that like he was citing a lot of like the same authors and articles in these cases from a few years ago that he was citing in his affirmative action decisions since we just did that last week, like a Rappaport piece called The Colorblind Constitution and a guy named Michael McConnell, who's written a lot of conservative takes on desegregation and desegregation era stuff. And he's like, oh yeah, those are my five articles. I'm going to cite them every right. time we're talking mm -hmm. about race. Mm -hmm. You know, That's what's top of mind for me right, right now. Yeah, exactly. I'm going back yeah. to that over and over again. We were yeah. joking about this. Like, this is how I do the podcast. <laughs> right, like, exactly. <laughs> yes. I'll like read a book and then for the next two months, I'm like, you know what this yeah. reminds me of? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's my theme right now. Clarence Thomas is doing that with the Supreme Court, with the law of of this nation, right, yeah. right. our constitution yeah. basically reflects what he has read most recently. And like, if you think we're exaggerating, he writes a concurrence in this case, Vallejo Madero, which we've done an episode on, but he literally says, and he's like, you know, I'm not sure if this is legit. <laughs> like, He's like, I'm not sure if my conclusions are sound on this. Very explicitly, he's like, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Mm -hmm. And what he's thinking out loud on is the idea that actually the sort of substantive force of the 14th Amendment comes from the Citizenship Clause, which says that you know people born in the US are citizens and have all the privileges and immunities of citizenship, rather than like the Due Process Clause or even the Equal Protection Clause, that like the Citizenship Clause is where you get protection against race discrimination and things like that, that once you become a citizen, you have all the same rights as other citizens and everything that's implied in that. Mm -hmm. For this proposition, he cites extensively and positively to Dred Scott v. Sanford, which is like largely considered the worst Supreme Court decision in history, helped precipitate the Civil War, said black people aren't really humans, let alone citizens, let alone had any rights whatsoever subject to the Constitution, just racist and disgusting, and a decision he loves to cite negatively when he's talking about, like, abortion, substantive due process. He says, oh, Dred Scott is maybe the first substantive due process decision. Yeah. And the precedent on which Roe v. Wade lies, which is like total nonsense, total incoherence. Right. But all of a sudden, he's like, well, you know, that Taney 
had some good points in Dred Scott. They had right. Some interesting ideas in Dred Scott. Yeah. I feel like what happened is he was reading it to try to like make the case yeah. that like abortion is somehow related to Dred Scott. But he like can't help himself and he's reading it and he's like, oh, man, Taney's spitting fire here. He's making some points. <laughs> he's making some points. That's the thing is like we were talking about this, you know, last year because he cited Dred Scott multiple times that term and Bruin, the gun rights case in yeah. Dobbs, the abortion overturning of Roe v. Wade and in Vallejo Madero. And it was like for one of these cases, he was reading it for like. I don't want to say good reasons, but for like reasons related to the case that made sense. Mm -hmm. And like, I think it was Bruin and it was like talking about the history and tradition test and things like that. But then it was just like he had Dred Scott on his mind and it just, he just started talking about it a yeah. lot, like in other opinions, right. including being like probably the only justice of the last hundred years to cite it positively right like yeah. that's not a case that has been cited positively many times in the last century and clarence thomas is top of list of people, people who, who have, have yeah. yeah 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 and you know michael you were mentioning that he does these like half-baked oh i don't know about this one yeah but it, let me lay out this theory what ends up happening is that he circles back mm -hmm. a few years later and all of a sudden he's much more confident. Like, oh, yeah, I got that one right. <laughs> so I mentioned that he doesn't really believe in the Establishment Clause applying to states. Yeah. And 20 years ago, he floated it like, a, you know, there's a theory out there. Yeah. That the Establishment Clause doesn't apply to states. And I'm, I'm just putting it out there. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, in his more recent stuff. He's like, the Establishment Clause does not apply to states. Yeah. And it's like, what, has something changed? Was like something uncovered? Yeah. Was there like an archaeological dig <laughs> right. that unveiled right. some new history yeah. about the Establishment Clause in the last 20 years? No. It's not quite that, but it is a dialogue that he started, yeah. right? Like, so he like supposes about this stuff and says, mm, I wonder about this stuff 20 years ago. And then what do a bunch of conservative freak scholars right. do? They start writing articles about it, right? Right. He puts up a flag. Exactly. Yeah, right? Exactly. Like, I'm willing to do this yeah. if someone is willing to build the case for right. me. Right, right. That's yeah. absolutely yeah. right. Vallejo Madero is actually kind of like that too because he talks about this other precedent Adirondack construction and he's like, yeah, I joined that and I I like I used to agree about like the Fifth Amendment and due process and all this stuff. It's like, but now I'm not so sure, right? Like we're in like the midpoint yeah. in his transition to completely rewriting the 15th and 14th Amendments, equal protection, due process, and privileges and immunities. Again, you you might remember we mentioned this just on a recent episode. This is also a guy who has cited favorably to the slaughterhouse cases, which totally gutted the privileges and immunities clause of the citizenship aspect of the 14th Amendment. Just a total incoherence to his like historical analysis, to his constitutional analysis, mm -hmm. because it's so like, you know, whatever, I'm kind of vibing right now. Right. Well, and I think it's because it's completely results-oriented, right? Yeah, like, It's for completely sure. like the specific issue that's on my desk in front of me right now, what result do I want? Well, then I'll do the historical analysis that gets me there, right? Like, fuck it if I said something a little bit or halfway different or I wasn't really there 10 years ago, right? Like, right now, yeah. I want this result. And so that's what history tells me right now, right? Right. Mm -hmm. One thing that I'm left with after like this kind of, you know, discussion, we said it's not comprehensive, certainly, but this is a lot of where Thomas is at in his jurisprudence right now. 
it's deeply authoritarian and it really is. It's very dark mm-hmm. to read this man's opinions, especially the opinions where he is on his own or maybe just joined by one or two of the other conservative justices, right? His vision of the world, his vision of the future is incredibly dark. It's incredibly authoritarian. Something that I don't see him writing about that I think the other conservatives at least give lip service to is the idea of like a working democracy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't ever see Clarence Thomas being like democratic ideals and democratic values. And we live in a multiracial, equal and just democracy. He doesn't talk about Mm -hmm. it. You know what I mean? He doesn't talk about rights like that at all. Even less than other conservatives like Gorsuch when he's talking about like religion. Yes. Will get very like, you know, saluting the flag, bald eagle crying about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Brett Kavanaugh talks about like democracy, Mm. right? Like in voting cases, in First Amendment cases, in election stuff. Thomas just doesn't view rights like that. He doesn't view rights as like things that serve greater ideals. He just views them as things Mm. that are. Right. And so I think that contributes really to the darkness or the starkness with which he's writing, Mm -hmm. right? And then one other thing as I was reading today, particularly in the cases that I looked over, which are about the criminal punishment system. But then, you know, Peter, you were talking about the student rights cases and it came up again was a very casual relationship that Thomas has with facts. Mm. And all of the conservatives do this. All of the justices do it. Let's say that. Right. Mm -hmm. But certainly all of the conservatives do this. But there is something unique about the way Thomas does it. And I think it just is supportive of our thesis. Right. That like you cannot read a Supreme Court opinion by anyone, but certainly not by Clarence Thomas. And just because they're telling you they're using objective means of interpretation or analysis, believe that it's objective. And so what I mean by the casual relationship with facts, you know, I talked about the Batson cases, Miller L. and Flowers. In both of those opinions that Thomas writes, both of those dissents, he cites to facts that are not true, that are contradicted in the record, right? Or doesn't contend with facts that are true, that are very real, right? Right. The fact that in the Curtis Flowers case, for example, Thomas is applauding the multiple convictions of Curtis Flowers, saying there's nothing wrong with them. When, if you've listened to the podcast, you know, it's not just Batson issues, right? It's not just that Doug Evans was striking Black people from those juries. It's also egregious prosecutorial misconduct. It's also police and prosecutors lying about the theories by which they convicted Curtis Flowers, right? Thomas isn't talking about any of that. He's saying these convictions are good, doesn't matter, right? So it's not just in those cases. But students' rights, right? Thomas is talking about that little girl Mm -hmm. as if she really did have drugs in her underwear when she did it. She did not. Mm -hmm. And so it's the assumption of facts that aren't even there Mm -hmm. to support an extremely radical legal theory, right? And it's quite loosey-goosey with, like, what actually happened in the record. And like I said, all conservative justices do this, but I think there's a certain egregiousness or just, like, I don't give a fuck to how Thomas does this, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up. There's, I think, a very natural desire to try to, like, get your arms around who exactly Clarence Thomas is. I think it's pretty hard to sum up anyone quickly, especially when their body of work 
and their public presence is so extensive. Like, look at how much has been written by writers just like trying to get that perfect couple of lines about Donald Trump, mm. you know? Yeah. And no one quite gets there, yeah. right? You can touch on parts of it, but you can't get it all. And I think the same thing applies to Clarence Thomas, right? People always describe him as enigmatic. He was first described that way during his confirmation hearings, and it sort of stuck. Mm -hmm. Political scientist Corey Robin wrote a book a couple years ago called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. I guess I've never really gotten that. To me, Clarence Thomas is the most predictable justice on the court. Mm -hmm. His ideology resonates through his jurisprudence more clearly than any justice of this generation. Mm -hmm. And I think the simple truth is that he's just very, very reactionary. Yeah. If he was white, would anyone call him an enigma? Right. The only enigma about Clarence Thomas is white people being like, wait, a black person believes that? Right. Right. That's it. Right. That's the enigma. That's, it. That's what stuns people. Right. If he was white, I don't think people would be wringing their hands about how to describe him, right? Mm -hmm. They would call him a segregationist, an authoritarian, mm -hmm. a misogynist, yep. a homophobe, all the things that he is, yes. right. right? And there wouldn't be much more to it than that. He is a quintessential conservative, right? At the heart of conservatism is like a pessimism about human nature. Mm -hmm. Liberals and leftists and everyone else believe that we can like purposefully structure society, but conservatives believe that we cannot, that society has a natural order, natural hierarchies that cannot be overcome and must be adhered to. So the student does not have a right to be safe from her teacher. A black person does not have a right to higher education. A gay person does not have a right to their sexuality. A criminal does not have a right to litigate his freedom. Mm -hmm. A woman does not have a right to control her reproductive functions. All of this in Clarence's mind is liberal permissiveness and decadence that should be subjugated to the maintenance of social and political hierarchies. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants. Right. That's what conservatism is. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Contrast that with someone like Brett Kavanaugh, for example, who espouses like wishy-washy bullshit about how he believes in diversity and gay rights personally, maybe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, abortion, who's to say, right? Yeah. But then turns around and rules against them for, like, abstract doctrinal reasons. Right. That's enigmatic, right? Yeah. That's confusing. That's hard to parse. Right. Clarence Thomas is, like, right before your eyes. Right. Everything you need to know is right there. And so I think that he is fascinating, you know, that yeah. someone with his background would grow up to be so conservative, so corrupt, so unapologetically selfish mm -hmm. to marry someone so ludicrous, you know? <laughs> All of these things add up to a person that I think is preposterous. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he's that complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous, but like mm -hmm. what you mm -hmm. see is what you get also, you know? Right. Yeah. Next week, it's that time of year again our Welcome to Law School episode, including some fresh thoughts from us about what it is to be in law school and what law school exactly is in this day and age. In 2023. We have a Zoom for our Arch Enemy subscribers coming up uh, in early September. 
about law school. A little law school discussion, open forum, ask us questions about law school and we will answer them. Yeah, and you don't have to be in law school to come to the Zoom. It's going to be fun. No, you can just make fun of law students. <laughs> Target rich environment. Right, exactly. <laughs> and if you have just started law school, we are dying to hear about the stupidest shit you've heard in class so far. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for subscribing. We'll see you next week. Bye. Love you. Bye, everybody. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. And our researcher is Jonathan DeBruin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. And our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Grand jury in Georgia returned 10 indictments. Oop. Nice. Treason. <laughs> Let's get that death penalty going, baby. Ooh. Yeah, and Georgia will put you in the electric chair or something. You know, they don't give a fuck. <laughs> Imagine what that corpse would look like afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Just like liquid makeup pooling on the floor. And- right. Oh. I'm picturing his like final rub on tan. Melting. You know, you fry him up and the room smells of burgers. <laughs> uh. <laughs>